Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. In an experiment. Why is light so far? Like, it sounds so simple. They had no idea. But now the data speaks. I find this... Not only refreshing, but but at some level astounding. Nature. Welcome back to the Nature Podcast. This week, splitting water with light. And a measure of matter in the universe. I'm Sharmini Bandel. And I'm Nick Howe. First up, for decades, hydrogen has been touted as a sustainable fuel for the future. When hydrogen burns, it releases a lot of energy, but only emits pure water. No greenhouse gas or pollutants to worry about. The problem is that most methods of producing hydrogen fuels either rely on fossil fuels or are too energy and cost intensive to be feasible on a large scale. But what if you could produce it cleanly using nothing but water? And sunlight. Hydrogen from pure water and solar energy, it can be a really clean and renewable hydrogen. This is Kazanari Doman. Water is made up of one oxygen atom and two hydrogen atoms, and Kazanari specialises in developing materials which can use light to split water, releasing the hydrogen. These materials are called photocatalysts, and they've been around for decades but so far they have been too inefficient to be useful at scale. This week in Nature though, Casanari has developed a photocatalyst with almost 100% quantum efficiency, meaning nearly every absorbed photon is used to make hydrogen. I myself was actually surprised. <laughs> Two years ago, we achieved almost 70% quantum efficiency, and we saw that that is almost the upper limit. So how do you achieve this near-perfect efficiency? The key was to prevent photons being wasted on reactions that went nowhere, and Kazanari used a few techniques to achieve this. First, the catalyst must have as few defects in its structure as possible. When light hits the catalyst, it liberates an electron and a quasi-particle. It is these particles which go on to catalyse the splitting of water. But if any defects are present in the catalyst, these particles can lose energy and be lost, meaning they can no longer catalyse the process. In other words, fewer defects equals a more efficient catalyst. To eliminate defects, Casanari used several methods, 
including the incorporation of aluminium atoms into the photocatalyst to improve the structure. Another important part of Casanova's approach was to use co-catalysts. These are additional materials that are placed strategically on the photocatalyst which direct the electrons and quasiparticles to the production of either hydrogen or oxygen from the water. These ideas aren't new in this field, but by combining them, along with a few other techniques, Casanare was able to reach very high efficiency. I think it's uh, really a great progress. This is Simone Puckrant, a material scientist who has written a News and Views article on this latest research. This is the first time that several meshes have been combined and implemented and with such a success. One important caveat for Casanari's new photocatalyst is that it only works with UV light. Now, UV only makes up a tiny amount of the light that falls on the Earth. So ideally, if you wanted to make lots of hydrogen for fuel, you'd want to be able to use the far more prevalent visible light. But Simone thinks that this work could be the blueprint for the development of catalysts that do use visible light. There are other visible light absorbing photocatalysts which have uh, similar structures, for example. So there is uh, no reason why we shouldn't be able to apply the same concepts to visible light absorbing catalysts. Development of photocatalysts like these would allow hydrogen fuel to be produced sustainably and importantly, cost effectively. And whilst we may not see them arrive tomorrow, with this latest work, we may be getting close. I would say that we have a good chance to get something reasonable in a few decades. Well, close-ish. For Casanari, he's hopeful that this research will energise the field, pun very much intended, and encourage more researchers to look into photocatalysts as a way to make hydrogen fuel a reality. To produce a large amount of solar hydrogen, we need to extend our solar energy conversion system to a very wide area. That's why I hope that many more people will start to work on the photocatalyst. That was Kazunori Doman from Shinshu University and Tokyo University, both in Japan. You also heard from Simone Puckrant from the University of Salzburg in Austria. We'll put a link to Kazunori's paper in the show notes, along with a link to a News and Views article written by Simone. Later on, we'll be hearing about how researchers have been on the trail of missing matter in the universe. Before that, though, we've got the research highlights for you. Read this week by Dan Fox. Deep near the centre of the Earth could be a secret reservoir containing the majority of the planet's water. More than 4.5 billion years ago, as the planet coalesced from hydrogen gas, dust and other material swirling around our newborn sun, hydrogen, a component of water, might have moved into the planet's developing core. Because we can't see directly into the Earth's core, scientists have tried to simulate what happened by analysing how hydrogen behaves under high pressures and temperatures similar to those found at the boundary between the Earth's mantle and core. The team concluded that more than three quarters of the early Earth's hydrogen went into the core, depending on how the core was formed, which could translate to over 20 times more water there than at the Earth's surface. Drink in the rest of that research at Nature Geoscience. Working memory has been called the brain's sticky note, a place to store information short-term, 
like a phone number or directions to a shop. Now researchers have found that activity in a specific region of a child's brain predicts the strength of their working memory. The team of researchers analysed brain scan data and performance scores on memory and cognitive tests for around 11,000 children aged 9 and 10. They found that children with a stronger working memory had higher activity in the region of the brain called the frontoparietal cortex. Children with strong working memory also tended to have better language skills and better ability to solve problems in new situations. The team hopes the findings could help to explain how memory and cognition change as children develop. Remember to read that research in full at the Journal of Neuroscience. Next up, reporter Adam Levy has been investigating a curious case. Today I'd like to share a mystery of missing matter. Missing baryons, to be precise. Whether you've heard of them or not, believe me, you have a very familiar relationship with baryons. The most famous are protons and neutrons, which make up the majority of visible matter in the universe, including the majority of the sun, the earth, and yes, your very own body. But the question is, just how much baryonic matter, how much proton and neutron stuff, is out there in the universe? Physicists know how much should exist in the universe. They know this by studying properties of the Big Bang. You can get an answer by peering at the Big Bang's afterglow, also known as the cosmic microwave background, as well as the relative amounts of the lightest atoms that were created by the Big Bang. But when you try to directly measure baryons by actually working out how much you can see in the universe, things don't seem to add up. So, roughly half has been missing, which is a bit of an embarrassment. This is astrophysicist Jean-Pierre Macquart of Curtin University in Perth, Australia. So we know how many baryons, in other words protons and neutrons, should be in the universe based on the Big Bang. But when we look, we can't find a hefty chunk of it. Well, Jean-Pierre has been hunting for the hidden stuff using fast radio bursts as a probe. I gave him a call and asked for a quick refresher on what fast radio bursts actually are. Well, nobody really knows exactly what they are, but all we care about for the purposes of this kind of physics is that they're very bright lights and they're very impulsive. So they last about a millisecond and they're so bright that we can detect them over the other side of the universe. We can use them as like a cosmological Swiss army knife. They're so impulsive their radiation, that it's highly susceptible to effects that occur when they travel through uh, this cosmic gas, even when it's very diffuse. And that process is dispersion. It's the same kind of process that occurs when you shine sunlight through a prism and it disperses the the radiation out into all its different colours of the spectrum. So as it travels through this intergalactic gas, the longer wavelengths, the redder wavelengths, get delayed more than the bluer wavelengths. So when you actually observe this with a radio telescope, you don't find that the pulse all arrives at once. It actually dribbles in. So you're looking at these fast radio bursts to see how they disperse. I mean, how difficult of a task is that to actually do, to firstly track them down and to get that data in sufficient detail to get an answer? It's been relatively easy to detect the dispersion that's associated with the bursts themselves. What's been the stumbling block 
is getting the precise position of these things to actually point an optical telescope and go and measure the redshift and hence the distance to that thing, which you need to do if you want to figure out the density of this uh, baryonic matter in the universe. So that's been the key problem. And how did you overcome that, that issue so you could actually not only see these fast radio bursts, but understand how far away they are. Well, this, uh, this involves technology on, on the Australian SKA Pathfinder, which enable us to see 30 square degrees of the sky all at once. So it means you can capture these fast radio bursts in sufficient numbers. And so once you've detected one of these bursts, you, you have a buffer inside the telescope and you say, aha, we've detected the burst, now please dump all of the high-resolution data from that burst. And that enables us to go back after the fact and to triangulate on the position on the sky precisely. Now that you have this data and you crunch the numbers, what answer do you actually get? Well, it's both a relief and exciting (laughs) that the number we get is actually very close to the number that you expect for uh, the density of baryonic matter in the universe. Were you expecting this in your heart of hearts? Were you expecting that you'd get the same answer predicted by the theory? Uh, I've learned not to expect anything in science. (laughs) But what was more surprising to me was that these fast radio bursts are much better cosmological probes than we had dared to think. And that was the real surprise. Is this now case closed for the for the missing protons and neutrons in the universe, or do you think this result will be at all controversial for, for the community? It, it won't be controversial, but it is but the beginning, because we've said, OK, now we know all of those baryons are there, we can account for them. What we haven't done is say where they are. So are they distributed completely diffusely throughout the universe or do they hang around large groups of galaxies? Now that we know the gas is there, where exactly is it and what's it doing? And this is critical because you want to know how all of these galaxies that you see about you in the universe are forming. There are violent processes in those galaxies, star formation, black holes spewing jets out, and they're throwing that baryonic matter back out into intergalactic space, whereas there's also cool baryonic matter raining down on these galaxies to form the next generation of stars. So it's a whole ecosystem here, and we have many more uh, puzzles to resolve from this point onwards. But now we've got a tool to do it. That was Jean-Pierre Macquart of Curtin University in Australia. We'll put a link to his paper in the show notes. Finally, it's time for a quick look at some other non-corona science stories. To do that, Shamani and I have been using the Nature Briefing. That's Nature's daily pick of science news and stories. And Shamani, what have you found this time that you'd like to share? Okay, so Nick, do you know anything about Planet Nine? Planet Nine sounds like a sci-fi novel. Uh, I swear I saw a film about Planet Nine. No, Planet Nine is real, or it might be real. We don't know. Um, lots of people are looking for it. It's it's a hypothetical ninth planet. We are not counting Pluto in this. Sorry, Pluto. Out beyond Pluto and Neptune, um, a mass big enough to be defined as a planet that is orbiting our sun um, that we think might be there, but that no one can quite prove is there. Okay, so why do scientists think there might be a planet out in the far reaches of the solar system? Well, so even though we've never seen it, we do know of certain objects, Kuiper Belt objects, that do orbit the sun, but they orbit the sun in like a really weird way. Um, They've got elliptical orbits, but they're all sort of lined up and they're lined up along the same plane. 
So the idea is to explain their weird aligned orbits. There must be some source of gravity that's affecting them that we haven't spotted yet. Oh, right. So there's some massive object, maybe a planet there, affecting these guys' orbits. But how are scientists trying to identify or find this thing, whatever it is? Well, I mean, people have been have been looking for it with, with telescopes and, and so on for a while. But the reason this came up in the Nature Briefing is that there's, well, there's been an idea that maybe Planet Nine isn't a planet. Maybe it's not a huge object. Maybe it's a very small object with a very strong gravitational pull. In other words, a very young black hole, smaller than the size of your fist, that could be out there. Wow, so just the other week I was saying that, oh, we found the closest black hole ever, it's only a thousand light years away, and now there might be one in our solar system? How, how can we confirm it? Well, this is hugely hypothetical at this point. It could be a planet that we haven't seen yet, it could be a black hole. If it is a black hole, then sending a bunch of tiny probes out there, but that would still be a whole big project, and the probes would still take maybe 10 years to, to get there. So I, I think we're unlikely to know for some time, but it's certainly an intriguing idea. Either a hidden planet or a hidden tiny black hole lurking out there on the edges of the solar system. The universe just gets weirder and weirder. For my story this week, it's very much back down to Earth, and I've been looking into a strange thing that bumblebees seem to be doing in order to force plants to bloom. They're, they're biting their leaves in order to make them bloom more quickly. Wait, the bumblebees are, are attacking the flowers that they get the pollen from. <laughs> Basically, yeah. So this was an observation some researchers made when they were doing a completely unrelated experiment, and they saw that some bumblebees were biting leaves of flowers. And like you, they were wondering... What on earth are these bees doing? And so what they did is they starved them of pollen and then observed what they did. And when they were starved of pollen, they bit the leaves of these plants. And what that did is it actually forced the plants to bloom much, much more quickly than they would have otherwise done. So, so rather than living in beautiful harmony, they're basically stressing the plants out in order to trick them into making food quicker. Yeah, so it's sort of understood that during stress, plants will bloom more quickly to just try and get their genes out there as quickly as possible. And so the bumblebees are taking advantage of that. But what's interesting as well is the researchers actually tried to replicate it by stabbing the plant's leaves with a scalpel, and the plant didn't bloom as quickly as when the bees bit it. So there may actually be some sort of chemical in the bee's saliva that also helps the plant bloom more quickly. Oh, that's super mysterious. I love it. I'm interested to know whether, like, long term, that's actually harmful to the to the plants to you know thought to keep getting stressed out um, by these bees. But which, but the bees are depending on the plants for, for for their food. Yeah, it almost seems like a sort of short termish strategy, but it's not really clear. So this was observed by accident as I said and so there's a lot of open questions about it and it's never been observed before so I think a lot of ecologists in the article I was reading in Scientific American were saying like this is really interesting we need to do more research in it to see how widespread this is because this was just in one species of bumblebee Bombus terrestris. You did your PhD in something about bees didn't you? I did yes I actually worked with uh, these actually this specific species of bees for a while so I remember fondly feeding them pollen in the lab. And that whole time you didn't realise how violent they really were. <laughs> I certainly realised how violent they were. I did get stung a couple of times but considering I worked with them for three and a half years and I only got stung 
Three times? I think that's pretty good odds. <laughs> it's not too bad. Yeah, no, it wasn't too bad. But thanks for chatting to me about this, Shamini. And listeners, if those stories have piqued your interest and you'd like more of them, but instead in a daily email, then make sure you check out The Nature Briefing. We'll put a link to that in the show notes, along with links to the articles we discussed. Well, that is all for this week. If you want to get in contact with us, then you can find us on Twitter. We're at Nature Podcast. Or if you are more email inclined, then we're all ears over at podcast at nature.com. I'm Shamini Bundell. And I'm Nick Howe. Thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great, too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com.